Hey, welcome to the Africa podcast. Today's episode is going to be with Maitha Al Hassan, a journalist, poet, and a scholar. The conversation is going to be hosted by me, Mikey Mhenna. We recorded this conversation on July 2nd, 2020 on Zoom. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining everybody. My name is Mikey Mhenna. I'm very, very excited to welcome Dr. Mayal Hassan to Africa Conversations. Thank you so much for joining. Mayal Hassan is a PhD, um, has a PhD, is a historian, a journalist, a social justice artist, and a mending practitioner. Her work bridges the worlds of organizing, academic research, media engagement, artistic expression, and spiritually guided healing practices. She received her PhD in American Studies and Ethnicity from USC in California. She has a bachelor's um, in political science and Arabic from UCLA and a master's in anthropology in Colum- from Columbia University. She is a poet, an actress, a speaker. She's performed at the Kennedy Center and on the TED stage. She's written pieces like CNN, Boston Review, The Huffington Post. She's appeared regularly on programs such as Al Jazeera English's The Stream and on The Young Turks. She is a co-editor of Demanding Dignity, Young Voices from the Front Lines of the Arab Revolutions. Um, May is also active in, in TV and media, a TV and film, for, uh, working as a writer on the hit show uh, Rami, and has more things associated with her than I could possibly say in one minute. So May, thank you so much for joining Africa Conversations. Thank you for inviting me in. I love any vision that is interested in curiosity and bringing people into the fold and democratizing that experience. So thank you. Yeah. So I think the right way to start this conversation is starting with your scholarship and your sort of early career as an academic. Um, can you kind of walk us through um, how you started working towards um, your um, your dissertation and what led sort of walking through the people uh, walking through your dissertation for the people on the call and how you got sort of involved with um, African American solidarity with Palestinian solidarity. Thank you for that. I really revel in questions around the doctoral experience because I think it needs to be demystified. A lot of people have no idea what we experience, the kind of hazing graduate students are said to have higher levels or deeper levels of mental health issues. And I'll explain a little bit or hint towards that in a second. It's also an experience that I, de- I had no idea about because my parents didn't get graduate degrees and mm-hmm. they had a different relationship to academia. My father came to the US in 1968, worked for a couple of years and then went in barely speaking English and and graduated and learned English in the process. And then my mom was going to school in Lebanon and then went to um, England at the start of the Civil War. So for her, it was just some something to wrap up. Um, so I didn't know what it was like to be a graduate student, let alone an undergraduate in the US. I mean, I for folks who are American and understand this, I didn't even know about taking the SATs. You know, this, I was part of the first generation mm-hmm. um, of people in my family to go to school in the US. So I had to learn all these things by myself. So my journey to academia was very much influenced 
by little indicators that people would give me. So for example, um, I just really loved school. I loved learning. And during my undergraduate career, I started to read and get very deeply interested in the life of Malcolm X. And that was the rooting of my journey. It's the anchor of almost all the work that I've been doing. So I read his autobiography. There was a lot of campus political organizing going on that helped us to make connections between the war in Iraq and also the dwindling population of black folks to a public university. So the fact that people are not being led into a public university means they're gonna be the first to be sent in the US's war. So those connections were already being made for me by the community of organizers and activists as an undergrad. So then I get obsessed with Malcolm X yeah. Um, and I find out that the scholar at Columbia, Dr. Manning Maribel, who has since passed out of your hamhu, he was working on a Malcolm X project and a very thorough, comprehensive biography. So I pretty much applied to Columbia just, just to be there for that. I yeah. initially had intended to be a journalism student. And then I thought that I needed to go to anthropology because it was a little bit more of a commitment instead of going on the beat for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. What you do in anthropology is you commit to a year of research. Yeah. But I quickly got very disenchanted by the master's program in anthropology because it was so esoteric. It was so theoretical and disconnected from community. And I just naturally transitioned into taking classes in the African-American studies department and working on that Malcolm X project. And then at a certain point, somebody who I was working with said, hey, you should apply and look into American studies PhD programs. And I never had that at the back of my mind because I was very critical of US empire. Just the name of it didn't make sense to me, but really it's a study of all the sort of intersectional systems that we're talking about, race, class, gender, empire, colonialism, Mm -hmm. ability, disability. Um, And it helped me go really deep in an analysis that provided a really strong foundation to understand and teach this moment. And as you mentioned, a lot of my research was interested in Black and Arab solidarity, but also um, how race factors into that conversation and it led me to deeply research how Arabs were racialized in the US globally, um, what it means to be a black Arab or a non-black Arab to erase the black Arab experience. Um, So I had to think a lot more thornier when it comes to like black Arab solidarity because when people talk about that, it's almost as if it insists that there is no black on the other side, on the other side where Arabs exist. And so I went deep in and part of going deep in was, as I said, Malcolm X's story. As we know, Malcolm X travels to the region in 1964, but he was there in 1959 too. And we are narrated a story of like a Disney-like evolution for him after he makes Hajj, but there was so much that gets missed by that, that Malcolm is making connections to the quote unquote Arab world, but also Arab Americans. And a lot of that is rooted, not just in the Hajj experience, but in people who were committed to the solidarity of, as he says, fighting for 
and drawing attention to the 22 million victims of democracy, the 22 million Black Americans who are suffering um, in this American yeah. nightmare. So that's, that's probably the quickest I've ever yeah. summed up 12 yeah. years of my <laughs> academic life. But how did, um, specifically talking about Malcolm X and um, that solidarity, you've been working on this subject for a while now. What do you think people most misunderstand about the sort of what um, the African-American Palestinian solidarity movement, like yeah. what, what is the sort of genesis of that misunderstanding? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think, as I said, that there is these brown Arabs and that there are these black folks and mm -hmm. these are separate bounded categories, but there is overlap. You, or it's necessary to bring into the fold Afro-Palestinians who've yeah. been part of the community for centuries and also part of the resistance and have sacrificed their lives to it. A, a really famous Nigerian woman was a general in the 1967 war, um, Fatima Bernawi. Um, and then there is a really um, um, prominent political prisoner who has been released named Ali Jadda. So there's, again, this confrontation that non-Black Arabs have to meet with our Blackness, but also um, I think on the side of non-Black Arabs, when it comes to the solidarity is for us um, to do the work of talking to our families and our communities to illuminate what black struggle looks like because on our side there's a lot of misunderstanding of what the black freedom movement has been about and the current iteration of it so i think the work that we need to do is really commit to a deep dive and understanding that history on the side of black americans there's been a sense of resonance with a struggle and a drive for freedom so yeah. they see that and they commit and they commit without sometimes knowing the political, the real political costs that they can potentially suffer in the U.S. and economic costs. Yeah. So those are the things that continue to be worked out. I mean, there's a lot of, there's, um, there's solidarity and there's also dissonances that we have to navigate and be honest about. And I think being honest and confronting those things is how we move forward and deepen our political commitments to each other. Yeah, you said a phrase that was really interesting, and for me, um, I always find it funny, like, there, we always see a phrase uh, like, you need to go and talk to your families, right? Yeah, yeah, Everybody yeah, yeah. needs to go and talk to their families, right? But there's, there's like a, a preceding sentence that needs to, I think, exist, which is, have you talked to yourself yet? <laughs> have you yes. done the research? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you know, do you know this stuff yet? Have you, have you read the, quote, unquote, the books? Right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have you committed to yeah. do the research for yourself to interrogate the ways that we all have been indoctrinated with a level of anti-blackness? Um, whether it That's is- Good question. Um, for me, for so long, and again, I'm not saying anybody who does this is, um, is a white an in internalized white supremacy, but um, I had to confront white standards of beauty that were seen as precious, right? So like the straightening of the hair or um, the idea of loving black features on non-black people, right? Yeah. Or the 
augmentation of non-black of black features on non-black people um and what it really means to sit with beauty is like the the deepest one um to sit with especially since i'm my folks are this is hard to t describe yeah. because i'm connected to every place but um the most recent point of departure for my family is syria mm -hmm. and so when people tell me oh syrians are the most beautiful what they sometimes are signifying or gesturing towards is because they're the most white yeah and if we perpetuate that framework um that is something that we haven't interrogated internally so thank you for that reminder yeah um, so my job specifically here is to queue up as many questions in the Q&A as possible. So I could talk to you about that last subject for about three hours. So I'm going to move on um, and talk to, about some of the other work that you've done, specifically around um, Muslim communities in the States um, and sort of advocating and telling their stories. It's funny that you mentioned that you were thinking about going into journalism, but you thought I'd go into anthropology instead. And then you have <laughs> since worked as a journalist in many capacities um, since graduating and finishing your PhD. So I'm curious about um, the, your experience doing the hijabi monologues, what that experience was like, what performing that was like. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I went into performing in plays at my um, university. So yeah. I got really interested in what it was like to be part of the acting practice mm -hmm. because it requires you to go really psychologically emotionally deep within yourself to try to inhabit a character and i guess i've been really used to doing a million different things at the same yeah. time so i would um do my classes um and for folks that don't know if you commit to doing plays you're making a sacrifice of at least four hours a night that sure. you are rehearsing and doing that work. So um, there was something about being in a space of telling stories to help shift the relationship that people have to the characters that the stories revolve around that was really compelling to me. Now, did I do stuff that I'm not proud of? Yeah, for sure. I didn't have the political consciousness to embark in that journey. So when hijabi monologues came along, um, I had taken quite a long recess from doing plays. I saw it um, because my, at the time, she was my brother's fiance and she's now my sister-in-law, had organized for the, the main writer to come do some of the hijabi monologues at our mm -hmm. local mosque. And so here is a performer that is on stage in a mosque reciting a story. And these are all real stories that have been sourced from community. And also part of the project is to help community members find their voice and write their own story. So sourced from community. And here she is up on stage talking about a story of a teenage Muslim headscarf wearing woman who gets pregnant out of wedlock. Yeah. And I thought, wow, um, I love that you can show a slice of life inside a place that we have sanitized so much that we can't even be ourselves. And so I just jumped in and said, how can I help you with this project? 
she was funny enough um, studying Arabic in Cairo at the time. So when she got to DC, she brought me and I started to do the monologues with her. So it was her and I as a tag team, I contributed a monologue, but we went all over, all over the US to different universities. We went to Canada, later they go to Holland, to Indonesia. And the cool part of what Hijabi Monologues was doing was one, source stories from community, two, a Q&A that would happen with people who were audience members. And also we gave them a paper to fill out their, their responses to questions about what they just saw. Um, but three, when we did the full production, I don't know if things have shifted and changed. I haven't checked back in with one of yeah. the founders, Sahar Ula, but we, when we would do full productions, which is like at least 10, 12 stories, we would go to those communities and then audition local talent. And then we would also see if they had their own stories that they wanted to do. And we would coach yeah. them in that process. So, you know, when you're talking about the work that you're doing with Afikra, it's something that is part of the history of the work that I'd been doing with Hijabi Monologues. So, yeah. So I'm um, curious, just to, because you mentioned something really interesting, right? So I'm curious who, who, as you guys were sort of working on this and improving on it, and it's theater is there, it's always a living organism. So it's every, you know, you, as you, re, as you reperform it, it keeps on changing and evolving. Who do you think the audience was? That's a good question because we get that question yeah. a lot with Rami. Yeah. The audience was a mix. It was Muslim folks, Muslim women. No, I mean, who, who were you specifically made to? Oh, who, wait, say that one more time. Cut out a little bit. Like, who were you trying to talk to? I who think was this it was, for? I think it was a combination of people. So, yeah. for example... Yeah. Um, Muslim women coming and feeling like they could connect to stories and to art, to plays like they had never before, encouraging them to write and speak their stories. But yeah. also, it was the liberal women who um, are not Muslim, um, who might have to or started to interrogate their own um, biases and their own indoctrination about Muslim women. So for example, there's a, a story that starts with um, a, a, a woman trying to figure out what she, what she should wear to get the least amount of questions and resistance when she goes outside. Yeah. And so she talks about what is it like to walk outside and feel the burden of representing over a billion people. And um, some responses that we received were from liberal white women who are not Muslim who said, I, I, that made me think about how I impose judgment every time I see a Muslim woman yeah. and also how I'm putting her through that. You know, I'm, I'm making her have that psychological angst around what it means to exist in a society that she might be a minority in. Yeah, this is really related to a lot of the healing work you do, um, which I think that a bunch of people on the call would be interested in hearing about. Can you talk a little bit about if it is related and how you think it is related to some of the, the healing work that you're doing today? Yeah, I mean, storytelling is such a powerful tool for us to disrupt and break cycles of indoctrination. 
And it also is a connection point. Storytelling happens in a very integrative fashion. You see, you, you feel, you think. And the limitations around academia, this is why we bring in so much multimedia, is that just thinking is not enough. Just being cerebrally focused is not enough. Mm -hmm. And so the work that I started doing with yoga, um, which was the first modality that I did work around healing, yoga is very interested in the integration of mind-body-spirit. And being in a place in my life at a time when I was doing my PhD program, so remember in the beginning I was talking about mental health issues with graduate mm -hmm. students. Everybody around me was women and men and gender nonconforming folks were losing their hair. There were some people who were going through kidney failure. Almost everybody needed a therapist. I myself went into a deep depression because I had gone, I had my intention to go to this doctoral program was to figure out somebody who is an organizer, how to get tools and skills to bring back to my community to make things better. And what I got instead was theory, um, analysis, paralysis. And then yeah. it led me to a place of what am I doing with my life? Like what, this doesn't feel like it's soul nourishing. This doesn't feel like it's taking me in a direction of making things better for folks. It's actually making things worse for me. Yeah. And it sounds bizarre to say that, it, it sounds like navel gazing and being self-absorbed to say, look at what this academic career of sitting and thinking and reading is doing to my mental health. But it is something which is interesting if you think about like the history of Western civilizational knowledge production, which is to yeah. say, that I think and therefore I am, which is that the brain is king and that the body must be subservient to the brain and so much emotions. And you know, there's a whole other conversation sure. we could have about how that leads to the characterizing of women as mad, as insane, um, because they're supposed to be ruled by emotions and not the brain. So given all that, I felt like it was my goal because I ended up taking a yoga class um, during my depression and getting very into it and connecting with myself, finding openings, finding how to connect with my body, with my breath. Yeah. Um, I started to do a yoga teacher training. So I found for me, what was transformative was the integration of mind, body, spirit and not to compartmentalize and not to make any part of my body subservient to the other, but to put them in conversation. So for me, that was the goal of getting towards freedom was yeah. being able to be interconnected. Okay, cool. Um, I want to talk uh, briefly about your work in media, sort of more like media more broadly. Um, because I, I find it interesting to, that you are so involved in independent media through you know, Young Turks and a lot of other different initiatives, but also sort of involved in, in TV, right? You're a writer on Rami. Um, what drew you into that experience? Why did you want to have a voice in that arena? Why was that impor important? How is it an extension of your, your work uh, around social justice? Yeah, I... Like all these things, I have 
a deeper sort of core of what I'm interested in doing. And the way that that manifests is something that's always beyond my imagination. Like I said, I didn't think about going to graduate school and getting a PhD. Similarly, I just felt the drive to tell stories around people who aren't conventionally centered in the storytelling world, whether it's media, whether it's TV and mm -hmm. film. And so the, the drive um, was interesting enough um, invitations into this space and in this world. So yeah. for example, something that actually, I don't think it's on my bio anymore, but was really critical to me getting into this media world was a blog that was called Kebab Fest. And it was predominantly written, it was like a community blog, and it was predominantly written by men. And this is, let's say, like a couple years after 9-11. So this is early days when there wasn't a big presence of like HuffPost or all these other entities online. And so blogs were king. Sure. And we, I got invited and I started writing. And then one of the founders of this blog was a co-host on a show on ART in English. Um, so ART, for folks who are listening who don't know, is a network on Arabic television and they had an English branch. branch. And so he was a co-host on a show called What's Happening, which was a view-like show where we discussed current events. And then there was like a blogging segment. Again, this is like early aughts. So the, I don't, I, you might even be able to find it on YouTube. I don't know. But he brought me in to talk about the Kebab Fest blog during the blogging segment. And then the, the producers asked if I could come on the show as a host. And so what's funny okay. is that um, Dina Takruri, who is um, an AJ Plus face um, host, producer, uh, she was on that show too. So a lot of us got our... Um, got our training in media around this show. So Will Yeomans, who's now a professor uh, at George Washington, was, was the one who brought me on. So, so then that leads to, um, you know, somebody who you've had in the community, Ahmed Shihabuddin, was on because he was yeah. part of a blog. And so then Ahmed Shihabuddin goes on and starts a show on Al Jazeera called The Stream. And I get brought on as a guest. And then when Ahmed needs to take time off or um, has other work obligations, I become his guest co-host. So all of this was very random. But yep. it, again, it was in line with this desire for me to push people towards um, deeper places of critical thinking and critical compassion that is very much interested and invested in freedom for all of us. So that's Very what I saw. Cool. That's what I saw journalism as being. And as I said, you know, I was interested in doing um, journalism at Columbia because yeah. this is kind of a little bit of my um, deeply buried secret. I've always wanted to be a war reporter, which is the most awful thing that you could dream of being. Because if you know anybody who is a war reporter, yeah. they're they're suffering from extreme levels of PTSD. And I had a friend who also um, was a big time reporter who passed away in Syria um, in 2012. Yeah. So I think that really opened my eyes <laughs> to, yeah. to what that really meant. So I think I've 
been channeled in different ways. And as you were saying, the Rami show also similarly, that opportunity to be a staff writer popped up um, without me thinking about it or dreaming or toiling away or hustling to make it happen. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's so cool. So I want to come to this in a second, um, but there was a bunch of questions in the chat. So oh, sure. what I think I'd like to do is I'd like to get to our little quick Q&A and then I'm going to ask a question in this sort of broader Q&A about the, your most recent publication or the, the publication I was just showing. So let's do this quick Q&A. What are you reading, watching right now? reading or watching right now? Uh, there's a book that I had put on my shelf a long time ago I had bought and I'm revisiting. It's called We Are All Moors. It's about Ooh. Moorish history. And then um, Rudolf Ware, who's a professor at UC Santa Barbara, studies Sufism in West Africa, gave me some of his book chapters, I think for an upcoming book, so I'm reading that. Watching, um, I'm hate watching The West Wing off and on. Uh, it's, it's amazing that it got the reception that it did because it did not age well. Um, uh, I just finished Schitt's Creek with my sister the other night. It's mm -hmm. said to be a contender with Rami and, okay. you know, I wanted cool. to see what this final season was like. Who would you love to shadow for a day past or present? Can I make or add a sci-fi twist to that yes. question? Okay, so what I would want to do is be able, not just to shadow, but to be, like, fused inhabit. into the body. Yeah, that's the word. Inhabit the person or whatever. And I've been obsessed with the idea of seeing life through the lens of an infant. Mm. That's okay. what I want to do. I mean, I would have said my nieces or nep my nephews or niece, um, but... They're a little grown. I think I can understand some of their vantage point, but I might still want to inhabit them. I just okay. would love to see how they experience the world. What do people most misunderstand about your work or your line of work? The hardest part is usually the multi-hyphenate aspect of it. Yeah. There's a lot to who I am and it might look disparate, but it's very connected for me, as I said. I like to go to the root of the root and, and my commitments make sense to me, um, but they might seem like I'm doing a lot or people sometimes want to anchor me to one thing. Okay. Whose work do you admire or are inspired by? Yeah, I was thinking about two people when you said that question. One is one of my best friends is Patrice Cullors, who is co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. And not only is it because she's a co-founder of this movement, she's also a multi-hyphenate. She's an amazing artist practitioner, a performance artist. You can look up her work. She's very spiritually grounded and rooted. These are the conversations that we have when we're doing our work. She also is a writer for a TV show too called Good Trouble. And she wanted to get into the room to shift what people were seeing and experiencing in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement and the larger culture. And lastly, she, um, she walks what she talks. And to me, that's been one of the most disappointing things about academia is to see people have strong rhetoric, really polished, articulate rhetoric about the world, and they treat people badly. Yeah. Patrice is about her work, and her work is around abolition and healing. And yeah. 
that's how she lives and that's how she treats her friends. And then yeah. the other person um, is my autistic brother, Tarek. Um, he's 33 years old and he's illuminated for me the challenges, the obstacles, the limitations that society has placed for disabled folks or folks who are neuroatypical or you know how, yeah. how little we appreciate neurodiversity. So like one of the things that I sit and think about a lot is what would his life be like if he didn't have a supportive family? And then two, how we've constructed society in such a way that we've defined normal as good. Yeah, and for sure. what that means is we can't even imagine what it looks like to create a world where people who are neuroatypical or different could hold down jobs or could have access to um, life-affirming um, services or could be supported. So he teaches me new things all the time about the world. May, I am opening it up to everybody. Um, so the order of the questions so far are Rami, and then I'm gonna message everyone else one by one in the chat. So Rami, if you wanna, sorry, Beirut okay. is, on the, is on the mic. Um, Rami, if you wanna uh, unmute yourself and ask your question, go ahead. Thank you very much uh, for the talk, by the way. Uh, it's very inspiring, especially hearing about uh, your background, sort of your journey through academia and what you've been doing afterwards. I'm actually kind of curious from the perspective of Arabs and where they sit between the spectrum of sort of blackhood and whitehood in the U.S., um, sort of what are, the, what, is, what are the challenges they've been facing in terms of that spectrum, uh, especially given uh, the recent uh, decision with the Census Bureau uh, that has maintained that decision that, you know, Arabs are counted as, as, as Caucasians? Yeah. Great question. I'm really intrigued by the history of Arab racialization and our contribution to it as well. So I like to say that Arabs sit in this place of dual exclusion racially. So one part of that is that we, in the early 20th century, fought to be defined as white so that we could get citizenship in the US so that we could be naturalized. And most of the folks who did that fighting were from Bilad al-Sham, were from Syria, Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon. And part of that legacy is trying to constantly prove our whiteness to the rest of the white dominant community at the same time distancing ourselves from blackness. But related to that, why I say it's a dual exclusion is because they aren't treated as white folks. Uh, there's a lot of scholars who've written about in the same period where they are defined as white, they are getting lynched. They're having crosses burned in front of their house. Things that have come out of the white terror directed towards black Americans were also imposed on brown folks or non-black non people of color. And so, you know, we, we had a opportunity at that moment to align ourselves with the struggle for black freedom, but instead it was more alluring and more seductive to do whatever we could to ascend to white middle class status or values because the American dream was so alluring. The idea that we came to this country and we could 
make money and that we can make a life for ourselves that wasn't possible back home. So that early history is fascinating to me. And then what you have, as you said, Rami, um, is that in this period, especially after 9-11, where the, the hate attacks, the hate speech are just so apparent. Although anybody that grew up pre-9-11 faced that same stuff. Like my dad has so yeah. many stories and I have so many stories um, of being bullied, of fearing for our lives. Um, but post 9-11, there was more of a public discourse. So it just didn't make sense to see ourselves um, categorized as white. And every Arab American has this sort of coming to Jesus moment when they are presented with a federal form and see that ca Caucasian has a parenthesis that says includes Middle Eastern and North African. And so our minds explode and we say, why do we have to fill that in if our lives weren't, didn't, didn't feel like we were white people? And so in 2010, we had this campaign called Check It Right, You Ain't White. But the problem uh, with our community, which it's a problem in every community that has to try to figure out how to be categorized under one label, is that there was an issue with being called Arab. Because clearly you're excluding other ethnic minorities. There's an issue with being called Middle Eastern. But also there's an issue with the way that people feel so invested with their national identities over a bit larger term. So being Lebanese is more important than finding an Arab Middle Eastern category or Egyptian. And so what that meant is we were trying to find that one word that people could check other and then write that one word so we can demonstrate that there's so much of us we need another category, but it wasn't convincing for the Office of uh, Management and Budget. I mean, they did approve it and then they, they flipped it. So the work that we have to do with the census in 2020 um, is to say, what is that category that we can align with and check other and write it? Um, but other communities have had way more wide ranging, disparate language, culture, and geographies than us. And they found a way to be um, aligned around a category like Asian. Asian Americans includes South Asians, includes Indians, includes people with vastly different languages from tied to Korean. So, yeah. you know, I think that um, it's an important discussion. I don't know where we're at with it right now, but I can talk about Arabs and racialization forever. So, <laughs> um, great. Yeah. Thanks, Rami. Um, so I want to, I don't want to go over the hour just to respect everybody's Oh, time. sorry. So there's, there's three questions left. I want to get to all of them. Sure. There is Ahmed, then Isra, then Sarah. So, Ahmed, uh, feel free to unmute yourself and go ahead. Uh, thanks for a great talk, uh, Maitha and uh, Mikey. Um, th there was something interesting uh, that, that you were talking about, and it just made me wonder a bit, regarding how uh, sort of um, an, an Arab or a Muslim uh, portrays his own story, be it in theater or film or something like that. And you had asked a question about, about the audience, like, uh, so that, that got me wondering, um, there's, there's the Egyptian playwright, for example, Ahmed Latar, he, he once said that he considers uh, the entire audience to be rabbits when he does his plays. Basically, he does not make, he does not cater to any special requests in order to not seem apologist when uh, this is a play, it's going to happen in a house in Egypt, and this is the story of what's happening in that house. I'm not going to cater to romanticize 
for example, the call to prayer or someone praying for like these 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 sort of images we would not see in 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 representations say here in the Middle East because we're used to them they're, they're part of our daily life but but I guess the question would be, does the audience really matter when one is trying to say a story of uh, be it the Muslim American or the, the Arab American, or do I have to cater, which almost like in an apologist form to, to, uh, to, uh, to certain elements of my own sort of culture to try to explain them a bit farther for the person who still may not be familiar with what a Muslim prayer is or uh, uh, what the Palestinian issue is, etc. Yeah. I hope, I hope that I yeah, I, I, yeah, audience is a very interesting question that a lot of creators are really meditative about. Or there, some folks are mindful, some folks, as you said, just feel like there is this intervention um, or intercession of some sort of idea and that it just has to come out and be expressed and it doesn't matter what the reaction is. But for me, I'll just talk personally, I think that my question is, what is the story that I want to tell and why do I want to tell this story? And I think that informs what reception or if there's an interest in reception. So for me, as somebody who has been trained as an educator, as a journalist, I am really conscious of who's listening. And, I, and, and not that it limits the expression, but it gives me openings around what a conversation could look like. I'm very interested in being interactive, so I love that you're bringing in community questions, um, with the thought process, as we call it, a discursive sort of tradition, a dialectic of being in conversation with the art and then the public, then creates a new iteration of culture. So for me, it's not just the art, it's where the art lives in. And you'll see, like, on the show Rami, that there are things that aren't explained. There are the, um, the references, especially around Egypt, that are not explained because it's for some folks and it's for other folks who might need to do the research if they're not from that community. So I think that, I mean, I can't speak for Rami, but um, I mean, I guess I wanna keep this kind of tight, but the episode that I wrote in season two, it was interesting to see how white, uh, entertainment reviewers saw that episode. And for the most part, it was a story around the hasad, around the evil eye. And so a lot of them couldn't understand the character development that was happening with the character of Dina. But I received so many messages from women of color across the board that said, I cannot believe this episode's on television. This is my life. Yeah, so good. Um... Thanks, Ahmed. Uh, so we have two questions left. Isra? Um, hello. Hi. Hi. Um, it was such a lovely talk, like everything from the questions, from uh, the part that you spoke about yourself was very enlightening, to be honest. And for me, I'm more interested to know about the healing process. So you said that you're into yoga and all of these things and because of previous experience in during your PhD. So my question is, do you think that PhD at that time, like you to your, like before self, that it was a pressure? And if you had the time, do you really rethink doing it? Or you will still say that, oh, it's the root of whomever or 
everything that I am at this point of time. Wait, so you cut out a little bit. You said that the root of... Of who you are at this point of time. So, uh, um, no, before that, um, you said, is it, would I, do I regret doing the PhD? Is that the question? It's, it's not about regretting or rethinking is that ah. was the right time to do it. And yeah. because of, you know how like in PhD, everyone is like, oh, you need to do a PhD because you get like a better education, a better... Yeah. Um, but a lot of a lot of things that go through PhD actually people don't speak about it. At the end of the day, yes. what matters is the title that you are a yes. doctor, like you are a holder of this. But anything else in between is just no one actually speaks about it. Like yes. no one comes and say that oh I had a mental breakdown or um, it's not working for me or people who actually question themselves. And we get a lot of people saying that I not regret, but it was not the right thing for me at that point yes. of time. Great, yeah. yeah. Um, there wasn't a day during my PhD program that I didn't think about dropping out. Didn't exist. Every single day that was at the top of my mind. And still to this day, I ask myself, especially when I found out that campus police made more than me, um, that what is the value of this work? Um, and I think it's fine to live in a state of doubt, but just like you said, I think that had I not experienced that deep level of depression, staying in bed till 8 p.m., not eating really, um, and then somehow having this idea that I need to start going to yoga, I don't know if I would have been exposed to it. And then that led me to a meditation practice. And then that led me to doing Reiki, which I feel like is even more um, uh, elevating for me than even the yoga and the meditation practice. And I you know, something I, I didn't mention is that when I went to work with refugees in Greece one year, um, which was also during my PhD program and trying to balance that too was kind of crazy. Um, I, I realized that there, I could do translation in Arabic and it was really necessary, but I wanted to provide something more. So the following year I, I did yoga and meditation for folks. Um, and so for me, it, it is, had I not gone through this process, I don't know if I would have come out because remember I said I wanted to learn some sort of skill set that I could take back to community. I don't know if I would have been led and guided in that direction, but I think I would be lying if I said that I constantly don't think about the fact that this was a tough process um, and I'm still traumatized about so many things. My writing has suffered. I don't think I've been able to write as fluidly as true and as poetic as before I came into a PhD program. So interesting. Thanks, Isra. Um, so we have one more question from Sarah. Hi, thank you so much for this conversation. And um, yeah, I'm just really like that last Q&A kind of hit me. So um, I, I don't, want to take up more time. I know that we're right at the end, but I was just thinking about how honest you've been, Maita, about the academic process and how, how do you approach people who aren't really there yet? Um, because it's, it's very isolating, you know, as someone who's been through similar things to feel like you're the only person who's suffering to this extent or that there must be something wrong with you. And um, when people around you are not being honest, like you're being, then it, it, that kind of compounds that isolation. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts about how to meet people where they are. Yeah, I think that, thank you for that. I think that 
forthright honesty begets forthright honesty. So I have made it my practice to try to go into those vulnerable places and I'm still doing it. I'm still trying to do the work to contend with the things that I am embarrassed about or feel some sort of shame in sharing that. But I, I think, and it's a process. So it probably took me a while to realize what I was going through to even begin to share. But I also knew that sharing was a part of the healing work. That that's what you, I haven't done verbal therapy, but through my conversations with my friends. I mentioned Patrice. Patrice has been a phenomenal resource in, in being able to think about the depths of the trauma, um, to think about what a healing practice should look like. Um, and I also try to surround myself with people who are committed to that. I was fortunate enough to be in a community of people of color, in particular women of color, who suffered um, disproportionately, and especially Black women, I should say, um, disproportionately and had completely different expectations placed on them, even different rules for passing qualifying exams or different rules for mm -hmm. um, turning in a, a dissertation. And so because we created community, and I think that's the answer, um, is when you feel the most isolated, when you feel the most alone, the 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 best thing to do is think about creating community if that community is not out there. And there are people who are feeling the same thing and it's just about the first person who will break the ice around the pain. Uh, May, thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah, for your question. Um, May, your, your unwavering honesty is inspiring. Thanks so much for sharing. Um, and I think, I mean, like the, the resonating theme is community across, like even when you're talking about like uh, the census, right? The, the stronger the us becomes, the stronger we become, right? Absolutely. Um, so thank you to everyone who joined. Um, thank you for having me and thank you for the Afikra community. Excellent questions. And I hope we can continue to be in conversation. Yeah, there's, there's still so much meat on the bone. I haven't, <laughs> haven't talked to you about so many of the things I wanted to talk to you about. So you'll have to come back. Absolutely. Okay. Have a good day, everybody, wherever you are. Um, stay safe, stay strong, and uh, see you on the next one. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week. Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious.